Once upon a time, um, a long time ago, in fact, I had this amazing realization that it just changed the way I view the world. It all happened at a little kid's party when we were playing the pass the parcel, you know, the pass the parcel where the parcel goes around and the music's playing, music stops, and one of the kids opens a layer out, drops a Freddo frog, and the music starts and the parcel moves around and it keeps going until somebody scores the amazing gift in the middle. On this particular day, I was one of the responsible adults in the room. I was told that I needed to operate the CD player. If you don't know what one of those are, talk to mum and dad, but it makes music. And I thought that the right and appropriate, proper, correct, the only thing to do was to make sure that every child in that circle had equal opportunity to get at that prize or that present in the middle. I mean, that's only fair. So away we went, as we're going along, one of the parents said to me, that child has already had their turn. And then it hit me, this moment of realisation, bright lights. All of a sudden, I understood that every party I'd gone to as a kid, when I missed out on the present in the middle, the person holding the button, the person clicking that button didn't want me to have it. It was just this epiphany, this amazing realisation. You know what it's like when it's been in front of you all that time and then... Clear as day, you get it, you understand it. It can be surprising when we finally understand how things really work. Um, it's like the, you know, the past, the past was surprise. Understanding what it means to be a Christian can be just like that, sort of. Just like that in that it's been in front of your face all this time. You've been mixing around Christians all these years and you feel like you've got a handle on how things work, but then there's that moment when you have this realisation and finally you understand what it means to be a Christian. The penny drops, everything falls into place, and nothing is the same ever since, ever, ever again. And that's the kind of thing that can happen as you read this part of Mark, Mark 10. It can surprise us like that, make everything slam into place, and all of a sudden you realise how it all works. On any given week um, here at Night Church, we'll have visitors with us, if that's you, welcome, make yourself at home, feel relaxed. We have others who come along every Sunday, but just don't quite feel like you belong. It's you know, hard to stick at it. Keep working your way in, keep finding ways to connect. There's others who have been coming for a little while. Um, you feel like you're part of the place, you're starting to serve, keep at it. There's others who are here because mum and dad make you come. You're not at this point where you think, this is my church. Stick at it. The past the parcel moment could happen. There's others who are starting like, uh, are feeling like they own the place because they've been here since before it began. You know who you are. What I'm saying is we're all at different stages, we're all at different positions, um, and so it's helpful to kind of pause and look at a passage like this and make sure that we're all on the same page in terms of understanding the gospel. It's nice and clear in this part of the Bible. And so if you've been sort of arming and ahhing, you know, am I a Christian? I've prayed the prayer, did it work? Am I not a Christian? If that's you, then this is one of those times where, yeah, it can all fall into place for you. And here's the thing, when you rerun the basics, when you go over the basics of what it means to be a Christian, even those of us who think we own the place can be surprised and corrected and rebuked as we look at God's word. So we're looking at Mark chapter 10. One of the um, past the parcel type surprises in this passage is in verses 13 to 16. Have a look at verses 13 to 16. It's when the little children are being brought to Jesus. 
And for the disciples, the, you know, the pastor parcel moment is, wow, Jesus has got time for these little kids. But for us, the moment of realisation is when you look at what Jesus says about these children, about what it takes to be a part of God's kingdom. So if you look at verse 15, that's the real surprise that anyone, everyone, all of us need to be like a little child in order to receive the kingdom of God. In other words, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian, we need to become like a helpless little baby. We need to be powerless, acknowledge that we're helpless, incapable, we're naive, we're completely dependent, we need to be trusting like a little child. Like a little child, we don't bring anything to the table. We've got nothing to impress. And like a little child, we're not going to understand everything. And like a little child, we need to be completely trusting and dependent on God. So 10 verse 15 takes you to the heart of the gospel, what it means to be a Christian. Um, Jesus welcomes failed, helpless sinners, people who can't help ourselves, and makes us into his people. And Jesus is saying that as Christians, we need to be kids at heart. We need to be trusting like little children, obedient like little children, loyal like little children. We need to let Jesus be king, be boss. And the truth is, it's not very easy to do. Sounds simple, but it's not very easy to do. We can find so many ways of not letting God be God, so many ways of pushing God to the side and ignoring him. You've already seen it on the way through Mark's Gospel. So if you think back to a sermon that Andreas took us through, I believe, it was way back in chapter 7 of Mark, verses 9 to 13. Back then, um, Jesus talks about how God's law tells his people to honour their parents, but the Pharisees, they set aside God's commands by saying, well, you can devote your things to God. You can call it korban. If it's devoted to God, you can't use it for your parents. And so with their traditions, they push aside what God wants. Jesus says they nullify God's law with their tradition. That's the kind of the growing up way, the adult way of not letting God be God. It's not very childlike, not very trusting. It's the religious way of disregarding God's will and doing your own thing. It's not childlike dependence upon God. So in Mark chapter 7, Jesus uses Corban as an example of the sinful human heart, the way that we can push God to one side, the way that we can ignore Jesus as our king. But there's lots and lots and lots of ways we can do it. And as you look through this chapter, there's at least three that Mark draws to our attention. So the first one, again, it's the Pharisees. So if you look at chapter 10, verse 2, it says there, some Pharisees came and tested him or tested Jesus by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Look at the first part of the verse. The Pharisees, the Pharisees tested Jesus. That's not very childlike, is it? It's not very, you know, obedient to God. In fact, it makes you think of way back in chapter 1 of Mark where Satan was the one who was testing Jesus, trying to trap him, trying to make Jesus take shortcuts and avoid suffering. The Pharisees here in um, chapter 10, verse 2, they have no intention of letting Jesus be king. We already know that anyway because Mark showed us that as well. Back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, Mark told us that the Pharisees began plotting with the Herodians to have Jesus killed. And here in Mark chapter 10, um, the Pharisees are using divorce as, or the topic of divorce as a bait, as a trap to try and trap Jesus. Remember what happened to John the Baptist when he spoke up against Herod 
and Herod being married to his brother's wife, John the Baptist ended up with his head on a plate. You read about that in Mark chapter 6. Here that the Pharisees are baiting Jesus. I think it just says they were testing him, but I think behind it they're trying to trap Jesus to see what he'll say, to see if he'll head the same way as John the Baptist perhaps. But Mark says simply in 10 verse 2, they tested Jesus. What Jesus does, though, is he turns the table on the Pharisees. Their question is, is it lawful to divorce? And so in 10 verse 3, Jesus says, well, what did Moses command you? And in 10 verse 4, their response is, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It sounds like they're smug in their answer. Moses said you could just finish it up, send her away, no responsibility, done. But then Jesus responds, verse 5, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. It's like saying divorce was granted as a concession because of you lot having such sinful hearts. Um, God never changed his mind about marriage. In verses 6 to 12, as you read on, we have a reminder of how seriously God views um, marriage and the marriage commitment. The only reason God ever conceded to divorce was because of the sinful human hearts that we have and our incapacity to be godly human beings. Um, The Pharisees, they have no desire to let God be God. They use um, God's concession as a way to get what they want, like a license to do whatever they want. And Jesus shows the Pharisees, well, you're treating this like you do Corban back in chapter 7. You're twisting God's words. Um, The Pharisees, they're trampling on God's desires to follow their own desires. Um, I'm told the Pharisees in their day created a culture where a man could wash his hands of any responsibility for his wife through this process of divorce. But you can already tell this, um, this topic of divorce is drawing us away from the main line of this passage. Um, Jesus is correcting the Pharisees. But as this draws us away from the main line of the passage, I reckon his correction of the Pharisees is just as relevant for us today. So I was um, probably playing past the parcel as a five-year-old when um, the Australian government redefined um, uh, marriage to the point of um, giving no-fault divorce, making it possible for divorce to be easy. Um, The advantage of having preached on the same sermon this morning and then talked to people after church is, well, I was never around in those years, but it was pointed out to me that no-fault divorce was actually very beneficial Um, for the wife in many situations. The wife in a difficult situation could get out of that marriage because they needed to. But the flip side is, yes, some good may have come of it, but from that point on, marriage in Australia has been redefined. It's not the same as marriage you find in the Bible. Um, It's no longer seen as a lifelong commitment by those around us. Marriage is not seen that way. And the slide away from God's design for marriage has continued now, um, due to equality, um, marriage has been redefined so that same-sex couples can be declared to be married. That's what, the way our society thinks. And that's the world that yeah, most of us have been growing up in. No-fault divorce was when I was younger than you. So Jesus' correction to the Pharisees, I reckon it's just as relevant for us today. So have a look at what he says in 10 verse 7. He says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, 
let no one separate. If you go to a Christian wedding, they're the words you'll hear read as we remind ourselves of the sanctity of marriage and the importance of being of honouring your marriage commitments. So here we are in Mark chapter 10, and the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus flips it around, puts it straight at them and says, you're not trying to live God's way. These men's hearts were so hard that they were disregarding the sanctity of marriage. And the disciples, they must have been a little bit surprised by all this. Um, maybe they had, you know, one of these mini parcel moments. Wow. And then the reason I think that is if you look at verse 10, 10 verse 10, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. Now, what were you talking about on the road there? And he answered, verse 11, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. When you read it in black and white like that, Jesus describes, the way he describes the failure of a marriage there ought to give us pause to consider the reality that divorce is a concession. Um, there will be no marriage in heaven. We're sinful human beings. We have relationships that break down. There's always shades of grey. There's reasons why divorce may be necessary. It's a concession. It's not God's design or God's plan for marriage. Um, Jesus says, yeah, there's no marriage in heaven, but while we wait, we can create all sorts of mess that we need to step through and walk through. In 2024, the mess we will make, um, it's vast, and it may include people wanting to become a Christian when they're in a same-sex relationship. What do you do? How do you unravel that mess? Or someone who um, has had a gender transformation wants to become a Christian, how do, they, how do you learn to love the body God gave you in that sort of mess? There's all sorts of situations where there's shades of grey and difficult things to work through as Christians. But here in Mark chapter 10, for the Pharisees, it's just a, and do we like? There's no intention to live God's way. So let's get back onto the main line of this passage. What we're saying is there's lots and lots of ways not to let, that we cannot let God be God, lots of ways that we cannot let Jesus be king. And here in Mark chapter 10, Mark shows us three. First of all, the Pharisees and their active opposition to Jesus, almost their aggressive opposition to Jesus. The second way of not letting God be God and not letting Jesus be king, it's far more subtle, I think, at least from where we stand. It's the rich man, if you pick it up in 10 verse 17. If you have a look down, read what it says about this man. He was nice. He was well-meaning. He was the modern-day sort of churchgoer. He's, he's a nice bloke. He's come to Jesus asking the right question. How can I inherit eternal life? He's, this man, if you look at what he's, how he responds, he's been trying to live God's way. But then you look at 10 verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Jesus has put his finger on, he's identified the one thing that will prevent this man from following Jesus, the one thing that will stop this man being a little child and approaching God as a little child, and it's the curse of being wealthy. Jesus says, go sell everything, give it all away, let go of your possessions, God will look after you, you'll have everything you need, then you can follow me. And as you look at this, this is certainly for us, one of those surprise moments. Wealth and prosperity, the thought that that will stop you being a Christian, it's foreign to us, I think, but it's very, very real. From an early age, we're trained to think that 
wealth and prosperity are a good thing, to be you know, secure in your own wealth. Not extravagant, crazy wealth like Elon Musk or someone. That's, that's just silly, but comfortable, secure. We're, we're trained to think that that's good. It's what we should aim for. We don't like the people who become greedy. We don't want to be greedy. We just want to be comfortable, secure, independent. And so we're trained to value prosperity so much that our middle-classness can draw us away from living for Jesus. The, the idea that middle-classness can stop you being a Christian, it doesn't sound right, but here it is. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 shows us that there is a very real danger in prosperity. Until you recognise the danger, then you may well be drawn away, distracted from living for God. So all sorts of ways that we can not let God be God, not let Jesus be king. Here in Mark chapter 10, we've got three. First, we've got the Pharisees, and then you've got this rich man. The third example of not letting God be God and not letting Jesus be king is actually the disciples, which again is a bit of a surprise. You see, Jesus explained that to enter the kingdom of God, we need to be like little children. We don't bring anything to the table ourselves. We need to be fully dependent and trusting to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian. We need to be that helpless, dependent child, powerless, incapable, naive, dependent, whatever. 10 verse 35 shows James and John just don't get it. They're bickering over who's more important. So if you look at verse 37, they replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in glory. They're talking to Jesus, saying, can we sit on your right and left? Can we be your buddies, important people? And Jesus responds to this there in verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. And just in case you think it was only James and John who thought that way, look down at verse 41, the other disciples are going, oh, drat, they thought of it first. The disciples, they're not being very childlike. They're still letting their sinful human hearts show, aren't they? And as we read it, it's sobering to see that these men who gave up so much stuff to follow Jesus, even they still battled with understanding what it means to follow Jesus. We come with nothing. We're like little children, nothing to offer God. So there's all sorts of ways that we cannot let God be God, all sorts of ways of not letting Jesus be king. Mark shows us the antagonism of the Pharisees, the sad worldly addiction of the rich man, and then this petty competition of the disciples. And as you look through it all, you think, well, what about us? What about you? What's the thing that you you struggle with? What is it that stops you being like a little child before, before Jesus? Have you had that past the parcel moment when you just realize this is how it works? Have you realized that the gospel of Jesus calls us to humbly trust him like little helpless children? In the case of the disciples, they're not really getting it. They're following Jesus around, but their hearts don't appear to have fully fallen into line yet. And so Mark records James and John's request right after Jesus has said what will happen to him. So just go up a couple of verses. Look back up at um, 10 verses 32 to 34. Think about what it cost Jesus to be king. Look at it there. So verse 32, they're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished. I take it they're astonished because Jesus is leading them right into the enemy kind of territory where people will hate him. They know that. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. I think probably the same reason. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. 
and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. As Jesus talks about the Son of Man, he's talking about himself in the third person. And as you look at what he describes there, that is exactly what happens. And you think about Jesus' self-sacrifice, what it took for Jesus to come into his kingdom. And it's only natural for us, if we're going to join Jesus in his kingdom, only natural for us to be like Jesus, to give up ourself. And then you look at the examples that Mark gives us to kind of ram this home. There's the little children that I've kept coming back to, little children being an example of how to come to Jesus, to be part of his kingdom. But there's one more example that we haven't looked at, and that's blind Bartimaeus. So as you look ahead to 10 verse 46, you'll find him there. But this is the second blind man we've read about in Mark. So the first one was back in Mark chapter 8, and I think that was a passage that Tom took us through. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus heals that blind man, but it takes two stages. The first bit he sees that people look like trees, and the second bit he sees clearly. And it's like Mark uses that little um, account as a way of seeing what Peter then immediately does. He recognises Jesus as the Messiah, but doesn't see clearly. And I think when you look at Bartimaeus, I think Mark's doing the same thing again. You look at Bartimaeus, I think Mark is showing us what it will look like to be a little child and to follow Jesus. Um, So have a look at 10 verse 46. Then they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, and Mark says, which means son of Timaeus, because it does, was sitting by the roadside begging, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. If you look at what he's shouting, this blind man is seeing crystal clear who Jesus is. He knows this man, Jesus, is God's appointed king. He's seeing better than the disciples. He's seeing better than the rich man, and he's certainly seeing better than the Pharisees. He might even be seeing better than we. Timaeus's blind son sees that Jesus is the son of David, the king in the line of David. Bartimaeus can see that He himself has nothing to give this king. He just calls out for mercy. That's all he can ask. And he throws himself at the mercy of King Jesus. And in verse 48, Mark says that um, many people told Bartimaeus, just be quiet, like the little kids. Jesus got no time for you. But in verse 49, Jesus welcomed him, just like he welcomed the little children. And Jesus gave him his physical sight as well. And then in verse 52, Jesus says, go, but what? Bartimaeus does is joins Jesus, follows Jesus on that road to Jerusalem to his death. You look at the way that Mark puts this in here, and yeah, I reckon he's holding up Bartimaeus as another example for us to turn over in our minds as we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Look at Bartimaeus's unquestioning trust. Think about Jesus saying, we need to come like little children. And as you ponder these things, how are you going? Have you come to understand that following Jesus means giving up everything else? If you're afraid of letting go of things, if you're afraid of maybe letting go of your wealth or your career or security or letting go of a relationship or letting go of your ambition, whatever it is, 
you can find encouragement if you go back up to verses 29 to 31 of chapter 10. Is Jesus talking? It's, it's to do with the rich and the impossibility of the rich being saved, but God can do anything. And you look at it there and there's this reminder that God will take care of you. God will provide what you really need. So what does it take to be a Christian? It takes humble trust and dependence. What does it take to keep living as a Christian? The same thing, to be a child, big kids at heart. It takes giving up doing things our way and instead following Jesus. It took Jesus giving up his life for sinners to make it possible for us to be part of his kingdom. What does it take to be a Christian? It takes humble acknowledgement of our failure, our sin, our guilt. It takes helpless trust and dependence on Jesus. It takes a willingness to live with Jesus as both our saviour and our Lord. And as you think about it, that's who we are as Christians, as a church. We're a group of simple people who've messed our lives up that Jesus gives a second chance. We're forgiven in His, in God's eyes through Jesus' work and we want to live with Jesus as our King. If you're visiting today, then yeah, keep coming. If this is all foreign to you, keep talking, keep thinking it through. If you've been around for a while, make, make yourself part of the place, part of the furniture. Log in, get busy, start serving. If you feel like you own, you own the place, then be reminded and corrected and pushed back to being children in God's eyes. And it can be surprising when we finally come to understand how things work. You may have the kind of the pass the parcel moment. Um, this passage may do that for you. The penny may be dropping, everything falling into place. If it is, then nothing will be quite the same again as you come to understand what it means to live for Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. Um, we'll do what we normally do. We'll sing, we'll wrap up church, and we'll have dinner together. But keep thinking these things over. Keep talking them over with each other too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible kindness to us. Thank you that though we don't deserve it, you sent your son to die for us. Lord, we pray for each of us here. Please be at work in our hearts. Please convict us of our need to come to you like little children. And Lord, we pray that we would. And as we pray for each other in this way, we pray too for friends, for family, people who are clearly not living with Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Lord, please work in their hearts. Please soften them. Please help us to know how to push them back to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.